You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A'uzu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Dear listeners, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome um, to another drive time show live here from the Voice of Islam studios here in London. You're joined by myself, Salman and Kamar Zafar um, over the next roughly two hours, God willing. Um, and as always, we are live. We are waiting for you to call us. Give us your feedback. Let us know what you think about the topics that we are going to be discussing. And as always, we have two topics for you today. In the first hour, we'll be discussing democracy and protests. And in the second hour, we will then be talking about the Holy Prophet. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, upon him the nicest person in the world but before we get started Kamar welcome to the show how are you feeling? Oh Alhamdulillah it's been a long time yeah. uh, since yeah. I've I think stepped foot into this room so I'm really really happy and excited to get on with the show today Great, great. and what a topic to start with as well isn't it? Absolutely and we are happier than you are that you've joined us actually so the topic that we are um, talking about is in regards to democracy and protest and first of all I think we should all be very, very thankful that we live within a democracy mm-hmm. where we can um, express our feelings, express our thoughts. Um, we have the freedom to expression. Now, how how far you can go with the expression of um, freedom is, is obviously a completely different topic. But today, as I said, we're talking about protests uh, specifically. So since 2017... Um, there have been at least 400 major protests in 132 countries. Uh, 135 have been anti-government or anti-economic protests. That's according to the Kennedy Global Protest Tracker. Okay. Um, now, when is protest actually sort of justified? Are we ever right to stand up against our leaders and make demands of them? Um, should protests be allowed in democracies? Does a democracy make it more or less right to engage in public protest? These are all um, questions that we will be discussing today and uh, are hoping to listen from our listeners as well in mm. this regard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are there are actually quite a few reasons. As you've already mentioned, so many different kinds of protests exactly. that take place. Mm-hmm. And there is actually further research to kind of look into exactly why protests happen in the first place. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. There is obviously a very emotional element to these things sometimes, and that's actually stated as the first reason why people actually want to take stage to protest. And yeah. right now, with prevalent social media, all you need to do is to turn on your Twitter or Instagram, yeah. read something, and feel like you're a little bit upset about that. And that's obviously, in many ways, it can be rightly justified. Yeah. People take to protest because they feel like they're upset by something which might be wrong in society. They want to fix that. Mm-hmm. Then there are those people who also trying to uh, basically preserve, fight for, and defend their identity. Yeah. This is another reason why they said that protests can also take place. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, mm-hmm. which you've already mentioned, is political protest. Yeah. And yeah. this is where jurisdiction comes in. This is where legislation comes in. 
and things can get a little bit complicated as well. They, they so, do, yes. yeah, you're yes. quite right in asking whether protest is the right and the number one response to these issues. And I guess we'll find out today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I mean, to, today, if I'm on social media and there's something I don't like, all I need to do is make a hashtag, really. <laughs> yeah. right? And and then yeah. make sure that it's it's, it's uh, um, spread publicly as, as, as much as I can, right? Yeah. We obviously... Here at the West of Islam Radio, we, we always um, look at the Islamic perspective of mm, things, okay. right? So let, let's look at the Holy Quran. So the, uh, Allah the Almighty states in chapter 4, verse 59 of the Quran, Verily, Allah commands you to make over the trust to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice, and surely excellent is that with which Allah uh, admonishes you. Allah is all-hearing, all-seeing. I mean... What do we sort of understand from this verse? Come on. I think we're talking about protests today. Mm-hmm. And whether we do protests, whatever, whatever kind of way we use, whatever kind of tool mm-hmm. we use mm-hmm. to try and get our way, the first thing needs to be clear that the way we're trying to get, the thing that we're trying to achieve, whatever that purpose is, it needs to be the right thing. It needs to be just. Exactly. So before we even talk about protest, yeah. we need to be talking about what is it that we're actually striving for? What mm-hmm. are we even fighting for? Mm-hmm. Is that ethically correct absolutely and that as a muslim obviously we can find that grounding from the quran very first question is what we are fighting for is it worth it is it ethically going to make sense does it have religious backing as a muslim if we can answer that question in the affirmative i mean you can use Mm. the quran and the traditions of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him to come to that conclusion then we can talk about all right We've got that on in the bag. What are the, the proper ways to now actually tackle this? And of course, again, the same verse talks about the answer. It, again, it talks about justice. Yeah. It talks about doing it in a way that's delivered with excellence. Mm-hmm. So what we understand by this is that when we are trying to fight for our rights or we're mm-hmm. trying to fight to achieve something positive, that should absolutely in no way hinder the progress or productivity of anything else. Exactly. It shouldn't have to negatively impact anything else in society because then what you've done is you've weighed down justice on one side but you've let it fly and let it escape on the other side so i think this is what particularly this verse would be trying to talk about right now absolutely i mean um when when we look at protests the the one question that always crosses my mind is how beneficial was this protest okay so obviously i mean there are loads and loads of um, protests happening across the globe and again it is not wrong to stand up for certain rights. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, if, if you have the right to speak up, please do. But um, sometimes I ask myself, mm. um, because then it goes to the extent <laughs> of really burning down uh, embassies and buildings and, mm. and burning cars and whatnot, right? Um, and yeah. that's something that, I mean, then I ask myself, how beneficial was this protest actually, right? Mm. So as you said, Always keep in mind that the progress, I think, should never s- stop. Now, we obviously want to explore the relationship between public protests and democracy today. Uh, how important is protest to a democracy and does it have a role after a democracy has been established? Um, doing this by looking at protests and governments in China, in Iran, USA, UK and mm. um, Nigeria, etc. No, you're absolutely right. thing is the way we can actually judge is a protest actually quite useful or not is by seeing what's their outcome mm-hmm. how successful are they mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right because look there are going to be lots of protests where a protest may necessarily be more successful in some some contexts mm-hmm. in other contexts it may be less successful so we're talking about number one the motive yeah. now, 
I remember, I mean, I was driving past my local area. Yeah. And just a while back, you know, the National Health Service, they did a protest. Yeah. And they were all across the UK. And, and, and I think to a large extent, everybody knew that this was going to happen. Yeah. And obviously, it is something that is a major concern in the UK. And people Absolutely. are worried about it. So they've come out and they protested about it. And I remember driving past quite vividly, driving past one of these protests. It mm -hmm. was quite late at night. It was snowing and it was raining. So yeah. kudos to the people that turned out. Absolutely. And you know, they were out there with their signs and, and everything. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering at, at the same time, I really wonder what's going to happen after this protest. Is mm -hmm. it actually going to change something for that particular constituency or not? Yeah. Yeah. Or will it take a little bit more than that? Will mm -hmm. it take more effort than just coming out on a night, which is obviously like it's very difficult to do. Yeah. But when we weigh it in with the successes, is it actually working? And I actually thought to myself, I actually thought, how successful would it be? Mm. So I, I, I went online and I just checked. I was like, you know, what what do we know about protests, generally yeah. speaking? Yeah. And I saw and I realized that there are lots of protests that people have done, much larger than the ones we even see today. Because mm -hmm. like in my mm -hmm. 28 years of life, yeah. I've heard of protests. Mm -hmm. I've seen protests in the UK, which are like, you know, you might get a few hundred or thousands of people to turn up. Yeah. But there are, have been protests in the past where tens of thousands, or even more than that, people yeah. have actually turned up. Exactly. And whether they haven't even turned up in the ground, there's been millions of people supporting them in the back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yet they failed. And yeah. when I read that, I was like, wow. Because yeah. that doesn't make any sense here. Like, we assume that because someone does a protest, the government have to listen. They, they must turn up. There has to be a legislation that says if someone does a protest, there has to be an end result. And unfortunately, that didn't seem to be the case when I looked into it. Yeah. One of the largest protests that I, I looked into was a protest that we all would have wished would have gone gone, gone to plan, but it unfortunately didn't. And mm -hmm. that was a protest against the World War One. Oh, there okay. were a lot of people, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people, that marched mm -hmm. to try and stop these countries from trying to potentially clash. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we we know that that didn't, didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But what it taught us is that although protest is one way to to fight to make our voice heard. There is no legal obligation or legislation that tells us that governments absolutely have to respond to that. Exactly. So even though it's an attempt to try and fix things, it's no guarantee that it actually will. Um, we, we also have so many other examples, like in Japan, there was a massive attempt, mm -hmm. a protest, in, in its thousands again, yeah. to try and stop them from developing nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one reason was for the fact of its, of its risk factor, but also because there had been a, a disaster that happened there and that caused severe environmental damage. Of course, yes. The protests happened and there was a lot of noise in that, in that short-term period. What happened is that although it may have had some sort of effect in that short-term period, when the noise died down, let's say a couple of months later, a year later, mm. they started building power plants again. And this is something which I then again, I realized, wow, what protests are really successful in doing is they're successful in creating short-term solutions Mm. They're successful in creating short-term noise. But the moment that it dies down, the people that were causing a problem in the first place are left at their whims again. They can do whatever they want. Absolutely. So that's why, again, like protests are, are good in many contexts, but they're not the only answer, the one and only solution that we have to turn to. I mean, it, it, it is contextual. You can even look at so many other protests, and we won't go into one more, I think, because this is a bit different. Yeah. Um, yeah. A farmer's protest happened outside the European Union. Mm -hmm. Now, Lots of farmers around the world, and normally, if you're not in the agriculture industry, you might be forgiven for taking for granted how important that industry actually is mm -hmm. to our country, to, to the survival of our democracy. Yeah. And not only this country, I'm pretty sure all around the world. Yeah. So they came to protest with their tractors, with all of their stuff. Even They even bought their cows with them. Mm -hmm. that, that's how 
serious of a protest it was. Mm. And there's literally pictures. I mean, the nature of the protest was a bit unique, I would say. The result of it was absolutely nothing. Nothing happened. Exactly. Even though they came up, there was a huge haltage of work that day. Yeah. And unfortunately, there wasn't a result that day. Mm, so exactly. on the one hand, we do have scenarios where a lot of effort is put into these protests. And people, quite rightly, out of their emotion, they give up their time. They'll stop mm. working that day. They go out into the cold. They put a lot of effort into it. How much are we actually measuring the outcome of, of this happening? How much success is there? So I think that's really what we should be looking into today. We do have recent protests, like the George Floyd protests, others in, in, the, in, in very recent times. The, one of the largest protests that's ever happened was the Women's March in, in, in the US. And, and they, they have had some outcome. Mm. But unfortunately, we, we see that some of the lives were lost in that protest as well. So we really need to weigh in. Absolutely, you're right there. Um, we are obviously going to be speaking about this more, but um, we are now going to be speaking with our first guest caller today, which is um, Tom Brake, who is the director of Unlock uh, Democracy. Tom, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for, very much for in, inviting me today. Wa alaikum salam. And uh, thank you for taking your time out to be with us today. Um, so... Uh, as, as you know, we are, we are uh, discussing um, protests and uh, in relation to democracy today. Now, public protests may be good for democracy, but how just are they? Well, first of all, I was very interested to, to listen to a, to a video from uh, your, your fourth leader, the late Mirza Tahir Ahmad, uh, it, going back to 1984 about mm-hmm. uh, the MD Muslim view on, on democracy and, uh, and representative democracy and how important it was to, to give over trust to people, um, but that I think the elected politi- politicians should, should work on the basis of, of justice and peace. And I think protest does fall into this issue of uh, justice and peace. And uh, in a democracy, I think there is a uh, a right to protest peacefully, mm-hmm. uh, and that is it is a it is a right. It's a right to protest, and it's guaranteed under the Human Rights Act that people have the right to freedom of peaceful assembly. I think then, of course, what you can argue about is the extent to which that uh, that freedom of the, of the right to protest, the extent to which it can impact on other people's lives. Um, and I would argue that the presence arrangements are about right in terms of the balance between a person's right to protest and another person's right to go about their daily business. But the the measures the government are proposing in the public order bill, I think, take us too far away from the right to protest. Absolutely. Um, now... As as um, I mentioned earlier, you you are the director of um, Unlock Democracy, and part of um, the vision of Unlock Unlock Democracy is to have a written constitution to protect the right to protest. Um, would that allow climate change protesters to hold up traffic by gluing themselves to the road? Well, I mean, first of all, very briefly on on why do we support the idea of a written constitution? It's so that we have a rule book for, amongst others, the government. Now, some of your your listeners will recall that a few years ago, our then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, tried to shut down Parliament because it didn't agree 
with what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And if we had a written constitution, he would not have al- that would not have been allowed to happen. Equally, for instance, the present government want to take powers away from the Scottish government and the Welsh government, powers that they already have. Again, with a written constitution, you mm-hmm. could ensure that that didn't happen. Now, as mm-hmm. far as climate change protesters is concerned and holding up traffic... A, uh, I would expect a written constitution to, of course, guarantee that right to protest, which we are, as I said, already guaranteed under the Human Rights Act and indeed guaranteed under the, the UN Charter. A written constitution would also secure that right. But having a right to protest isn't the same as having a right to glue yourself to the road. And it's worth highlighting that the... The director of public prosecutions, uh, Max Hill, he is on record that he says that the the police and the prosecution service already have the legal tools they need to tackle disruptive protests like people gluing themselves to the road. So I would argue that the police and the director of public prosecutions does as well already have the powers that they need to deal with that and that these extra powers are ones that... In many cases, the police haven't actually asked for, and uh, some very senior people don't think are actually needed. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. I think we, we are also talking about protests on the one hand, we're also talking about the government's response to protests. And we have seen a wave of public sector strikes this winter, some of them by nurses, some of them by transport workers. Are these signs of a flourishing democracy when the government actually refuses to listen to their demands? Well, obviously, I welcome the fact that we are a a democracy in which people have the right to to strike and they have the right to to protest if they think that, um, whether it's their terms of conditions or indeed the the sector that they work in is under, uh, you know, huge pressure. But what I worry about is that the announcement the government made literally a couple of days ago around, in effect, um, giving employers the power to sack people who uh, went out on strike, I think that is a very retrograde step and, and again, is likely to fall foul both of uh, the Human Rights Act but also, indeed, some international labour treaties that we are signed up to. So I think that is completely counterproductive in trying to sort out these major major disputes that are happening at the moment in health and and, and rail and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So following on from that, I mean, what are your views on the Labour Party's recent proposal to abolish the House of Lords as it currently stands? Well, we, we, uh, as an organisation, we welcome the fact that this this whole area of democratic reforms, which we we campaign on, are reflected in the, the Brown Commission report, which touches on the issue of House of Lords reform. But What we're very disappointed about in Mm. counterpart is that something that we are pressing for, which we think would make a fundamental difference to democracy in the UK and would ensure, for instance, much better representation of uh, ethnic minority communities in the people who get elected to Parliament. Uh, What is missing from Labour's agenda is proportional representation. In other words, a voting system where everyone's vote counts and it counts equally. So great that there's movement on the House of Lords potentially, but very disappointed about the absence of anything to do with a fairer voting system. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you just mentioned the election, so 
I mean, how, how can we uh, ensure an engaged um, electorate when over half of the 18 to 24-year-olds didn't even bother to vote in the 2019 general election? Well, I, I, it almost goes back to the beginning of this conversation and, um, uh, the, the, you know, the anti-Muslim commitment to ensuring that you, know, you, you give over your trust to politicians, to elected representatives, but you do that because you are going to trust them mm. and you're going to trust they're going to do the right thing. And I think one of the problems we've had uh, in recent years is that uh, politicians very often have demonstrated that they're not trustworthy because they don't deliver uh, on their commitments. Mm. They overpromise what they can deliver. Uh, sometimes they don't tell the truth. And sometimes they take personal advantage uh, and derive financial benefits from uh, mm. from being politicians. So that needs to be addressed because as long as trust in politicians remains as low as it does, 18 to 24 year olds are unlikely to vote in huge numbers. But there are also some very practical things we can do, more education in schools, more outreach, so more young politicians and activists talking to young people, and also some, some highly practical things like automatic voter registration. So in other words, when someone uh, reaches 17 or 18, they might apply for a passport, they might apply for a driving license. Mm. At the same time, they're encouraged to register to vote because many young people simply never get on the register and therefore come the next election, they're not going to have a vote. Absolutely. Um, Tom, it was lovely to speak with you as we have spoken to you a few times before and we would also like to have you on in the future. Thank you very much for joining us and have a lovely day ahead. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, so we were just um, speaking with um, Tom Brake, who is the director of Unlock Democracy and who gave us um, some interesting insight into the topic of protests, especially within a democracy. And he left us with the message that we need to raise awareness within mm -hmm. the youth um, because the situation we saw at the 2019 elections wasn't very promising, was it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we pretty much ended off with a, a discussion on, okay, protest is one thing, yeah, and maybe another outcome or another way to change the legislation in a country, change the way things are done, is by using your power to vote. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, like you've already said, like the, the, when it comes to the 18, 24-year-olds, I mean, we're talking about the younger demographic here, yeah. seemingly don't have the same energy to come and turn up to vote yeah. as opposed to those who are a little bit older. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Tom actually came on and suggested that perhaps that's got a lot to do with trust. Mm -hmm. A trust is important, right? And I think that's a, a very important Islamic principle, but where it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We trust those who are empowered to obviously deliver their job. And that's exactly how the hierarchy needs to work. Mm -hmm. uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has actually has reminded us that the best leader is actually their servant. A true ser a leader is actually their servant. Yeah. And that is the way that we need to be having a relationship between another. If the youth actually had somebody and they have somebody they can trust them they know that this person has my best interests at heart that whole voting process would be a lot stronger and we can see as Mr. Tom has said that unfortunately sometimes due to the lack of that trust we can see an absolute lack of show up basically for voting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely I mean sometimes you um, just ask yourself is there even a point mm. right <laughs> so I mean we are obviously uh, told and this is what Islam teaches us as well that we all, always need to be positive Mm. Right. 
and uh, we need to become part of the change we can't just expect people hmm. to bring about the change that we are hoping yeah um to happen now where where does this start off this starts off when we um look at the education of our children we make sure that they get the, the right sort of education that they have the right sort of ethics that they have the right sort of moral values so that they can grow up to be um invaluable assets of society so that they can grow up to be one of those that maybe make the decisions tomorrow um that's another way obviously of bringing change um but um protests are also going to be helping in in, in some way or another You're absolutely right um i think with regards to protests yeah where we're talking about the whole idea that i think people normally turn to the streets yeah normally they do it when they think that the current systems in place are not in their favor mm-hmm. so we're talking about voting we're talking about conversation done i think people generally know these things exist mm-hmm. i think it's when they feel like it's not working or that they can't trust the system the way it works and that their voice won't be heard that they turn to the to the streets and like we've said already in the beginning this is an emotional reaction and it's it's probably expected mm. but does it actually bring about results yeah that's the question that we should first be asking mm-hmm. and a lot of the protests that we've already spoken about although they may have had some short term benefit there has either been a loss of life a loss mm. of in- infrastructure on that same day mm. and to sometimes little benefit and sometimes it has actually worked as well especially when they are more to do with for example we look at martin luther king yeah. and obviously he had a huge campaign for equality at the same time that protests were happening the real thing that actually enabled him to secure the power of vote was the fact that he actually went up to the governors mm-hmm. he went up to the bureaucrats yeah. and was having actual political discourses with them yeah. engagements face to face and obviously getting there is no easy task but when he finally got there that's exactly what changed the legislation mm-hmm. making sure that actually you know what you can have a voice yeah and that's what we're talking about outcome is what what we need to see and so the protests were there but the thing that fueled that solution was actually dialogue with bureaucrats with politicians where it mattered and to be able to, to for someone to be able to be in a position where they can actually go and talk to a bureaucrat they can go and talk to a politician your point is absolutely valid that uh, these youngsters need to have that education mm. they need mm. to know how to do that they mm. need to be first of all taught what are the avenues to do that because i don't really remember at least for myself being very clearly told as a child Hey, these are the avenues that are available to you. Here's mm-hmm. voting, but here's 10 other places you can try as well. Yeah, you yeah. got your council, you can go online. There's so many different ways you can write a letter to your MP. There's so many things that you can do which Absolutely. we're not normally aware of, right? Yeah. First of all, being educated about how to do it. And mm. second, of course, knowing what to say. And this is all part of education. I mean, another way of of protesting, and this is what the Islamic leaders does, is actually praying for it. Oh yeah, right? Um, I remember this this story that there was someone I'm not too sure whether he was a king or a leader, but he he was going to be attacked by some other nation, and he he said to them, "Look, um, I I can't physically fight with you because you 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 have a larger army than I have, and you have a lot more, um um, uh, of 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 the um, uh, power, but what I'm going to do is that I'm going to pray at night, and I'm going to fight with you through my prayers." Oh, yes. Right now, this is this is what Islam teaches us, right? That well, th- there is always two aspects to to things. So one thing is that you physically work for something, hmm. but on the other side is also that you always pray for the, for the change to come about because essentially the power lies with the, the the Almighty, with Allah the Almighty, that can actually bring about change for us. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, more about this um, in a little while. We now have with us our second guest caller for today, which is um, Joshua uh, Forstenza, who is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of um, Sheffield. Um, um, Joshua Forstenza, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the Drive Time Show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Thank you uh, for being with us. Um, in in what way is the um, deviant democracy different to liberal democracy that we have in place in the UK today? Uh, um, uh, so John Dewey was an American philosopher who mostly wrote in the uh, first half of the 20th century. And he developed a distinctive account of democracy, which um, actually really stresses the notion that democracy is more than a set of institutions. It's actually a way of life or a, a set of cultural expectations and, uh, and relationships that we have with one another. So uh, the main difference when we think of uh, Dewey and democracy as opposed to contemporary liberal, liberal democracy in Britain is that uh, though the institutions would be quite similar in a lot of aspects in, at the national level uh, in terms of having elected governments and uh, representatives and so on and so forth, what really would be different is that smaller institutions, uh, for example, uh, businesses, for example, schools or universities or uh, even faith groups, would have a, a more uh, built-in set of mechanisms to make them more democratic, to basically include people uh, in decision-making and make it a habit in their everyday lives that they're used to taking responsibility for collective affairs at all uh, kind of levels of their lives. And the thought is that by doing that on a day-to-day -day basis, Ultimately, people would be more able to participate in uh, the wider national mm. institutions mm. because they kind of know how to do democracy. That mm. democracy isn't sort of just something that's there. It's about something that you actually do. And you've got to have the right habits for that. Okay. I mean, you kind of almost just explained democracy there as a lifestyle and a habit that needs to be instilled in every level of society. But exactly how would that happen? And what are the ways that do we explain that how can civic engagement actually aid the de de democratic process? So I think there's really, you know, two things that Dewey's famous for saying, but I I'll, I'll say a third thing that's sort of my own. Uh, <laughs> Dewey's famous for saying that school uh, is the engine of democracy. So basically, uh, mm. the, uh, the model that Dewey had in mind was that schools would be places in which the whole community, uh, kids who actually go to learn, but also parents and even people who don't have kids themselves, but are community members, um, as well as teachers, uh, and administrators in schools would uh, come together to think about ways in which the school could serve uh, the community in which it's based uh, and, and come up with plans in which um, some of the things that students would do when they're in school would be able to actually serve the general interests of the community. Uh, and so, you know, that, that sounds kind of abstract, right? But you could take it really simply. Uh, instead of having children learning maths in a fairly abstract way or uh, learning maths where it's primarily applied uh, to businesses, what you could do is uh, get a, a group of children uh, to think about something that they might be interested in doing, just a, a practical project, and you could put them in conversation, for example, with their grandparents uh, and ask them to think with their grandparents about what would be something that would be just good for the collective. Hmm. And one dimension of the project that they might come up with will be mathematics, but others might be geography, might be history. And so the thought is that by coming up with projects, they'll actually learn the content matter by being dedicated to the projects but the projects have to be born out of the interest of the community. So that's, that's one thing, is that education is supposed to be this uh, um, manufacturer, if you like, of the fundamentals of democracy, of the, that, that culture 
uh, and habituation of caring about the common interest, but also being actively involved in communal projects, which enables young people to learn the content matter instead of putting the content matter at, at the center in the way in which, for example, when Rishi Sunak announced everyone should be learning mathematics till the age of 18, uh, that, that puts uh, at the center of it just the content. But what's more interesting for, from a Duyan perspective is what are the things that we're enabled to do and that we want to do as collectives, which require us to learn subject matters. The second thing that Dewey is quite famous for talking about is industrial democracy, and that's also quite topical at the moment because of all the strikes that are going on in this country. Dewey thought that, in essence, we should actually get uh, businesses to uh, always have um, workers on the board of directors. Uh, and in fact, uh, there should be as many uh, places within uh, businesses for workers to be able to exercise uh, a larger degree of local control than what is contemporarily normal uh, <laughs> under capitalistic uh, standard businesses. Uh, but uh, one step towards that would be, for example, the German model in which uh, in, in many of the uh, major industries, uh, it's guaranteed by law that um, the, the unions uh, have seats on the board of directors, which tends to uh, reduce the strain when there are negotiations over pay, conditions, and so on and so forth, and make it easier uh, for, for uh, all the people involved in those companies to make good decisions because, of course, the workers want to keep their jobs, so they want to keep the companies being profitable enough, uh, but at the same mm. time, they want the conditions to be uh, fair and uh, actually productive. So that kind of power sharing within uh, an industrial context is really fundamental to the Deweyan uh, model. Sometimes it's kind of associated with guild socialism uh, in, the, in Britain in the, in the late 19th century. There's a kind of similarity there. But what I would add is just that this, that if you're a Deweyan Democrat today, uh, like me, then uh, what you're really concerned about uh, is the fact that, in fact, uh, we need to think in every direction uh, to be able to get people to have the realization that democracy uh, isn't something that's just happening to them. It's something that they have to uh, become hmm. uh, uh, capable of seeing uh, as within reach uh, and something that they actually want to do. And so one one example here is that we could meaningfully make changes, for example, by making it more um, easy for young people to vote. So vote at 16 is one way of potentially uh, making that from a younger age, uh, if young people uh, uh, vote uh, basically younger, then they're more likely to keep that habit throughout their lives. Hmm. And so everything that we would kind of engage in institutional design that would teach people that when they do participate in democracy, it actually affects change, all of that would be uh, highly desirable because it would teach people that, in fact, when you cultivate the right habits uh, and you, uh, for example, help out in your local area and participate in democratic deliberations, you see the effects, you feel more likely to want to do that again and again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, critics of uh, do we say modern societies are sort of too complex for this kind of uh, collaborative government. What would you say about that? I mean, that, that is indeed a, a standard critique uh, of, uh, of Dewey. That's partially because Dewey was very influenced uh, by Thomas Jefferson's um, ideal of uh, many publics, places where uh, a community could come together into a common space and sort of talk to each other uh, on, a, on a very human level. And so when we have millions of people, uh, or in some cases billions of people, uh, in, in a common polity, it can be very difficult to imagine that people are able to participate in a dialogue where uh, they're really kind of um, both doing politics but also having human relations. And that was sort of one of the key Dewey and insights, was that there was something very attractive about that. I think the, the challenge is the following for us, is that 
it's clear that the Deweyan kind of aspiration seems maybe overly idealistic if we think of it as uh, achievable right now. Hmm. But what it teaches us is that there are steps we could take to make politics, in a sense, less alien, less, to, I think the way in which sometimes British people talk about politics, it's uh, as if it's distinct from their ordinary private life. Uh, now, this is repeated in lots of different cult- countries, but I think maybe Britain is one country in which this is most clearly articulated, where politics just seems sort of like something that happens over there by other people and not by the likes of us. Um, and one of the key insights on the Dewey model is that anything we could do to help people feel like, in fact, politics isn't primarily uh, about institutions and big decisions and, and about power that other people have over us, but it's also about power that we can build here to make our institutions that are within our own control or make our relationships that we're a part of on a day-to-day basis better, uh, more respectful uh, of each other's dignity, more uh, representative of our collective interests, and more empowering for uh, people to be able to articulate the world they want to live in. I've been listening to your uh, radio show since the hour, and uh, you know the things you've been discussing are really important and relevant about what's the place of protest. Uh, in democracy. Well, part of that is being able to articulate to those who have power mm. now, to the mighty, what those who don't have power uh, actually wish for. But that requires work. That's a kind of civic work. That's not something mm. to, to, to do protest isn't just showing up on the day. There are people who put time and effort and thoughts into when to do it, how to do it, how to get people to come into the project, when to talk to the elected officials. Uh, one of you was talking about Martin Luther King Jr. talking to governors in America uh, and, to, and to the, in fact, U.S. president. That did happen. Uh, and, but that took a great deal of work. And it mm. also took a context in which some force in French, we say rapport de force, some relationship in which there was mm. a strain whereby the mighty had to yield something because, in fact, uh, power doesn't yield anything without a demand. I think that's uh, Frederick Douglass that I'm quoting off the top of my head. But so. <laughs> You know that that is part of the reality of where we live in. We don't we don't live in an idealized fantasy hmm. where those who have power just break it up and give it away freely. Yeah. We have to build the conditions for ordinary people to be able to make those demands hmm. and be credible to each other more than to the mighty at first to each other in the project of uh, developing a way of living together that we find more meaningful, hmm. more respectful of one another. Well, Mr. Joshua, you you kind of spoken about how well you cited back the example of Martin Luther King and how he actually how is it that he actually got there in the first place how did he even get that opportunity and it's and you, you've always spoken about education and how important that is and I mean growing up in the UK I can't quite put, pinpoint exactly when I would have been taught about any of this but with Dewey's vision do you feel like that that has already been implemented in the way that we educate today and if not how important is it for that to be done and minutely speaking would that be done in a subliminal way or would that be a very direct change to the curriculum for example how do you envision that okay well first no education as it is today is not doing in <laughs> characteristic mm-hmm. okay. uh, at all uh in britain in general if you, if you take standard education and kind of uh mo- most of the, the the state system um Because one of the things that uh, standard education in Britain focuses on is content matter. So the main focus in education uh, now is to teach people various bodies of knowledge and expect them that if they know about, uh, say, English literature and know about mathematics and history Mm. and so on and so forth, that they've got an education. Mm. The the Dewey and Insight is that the real role of education is to learn how to do things. That uh, knowledge about is necessary and useful for learning how to do things. But in essence, if we teach people that it's knowledge that that's more important than knowledge how, then in essence, we're 
we're kind of teaching them to be passive. We're okay. teaching them to be on the back foot and largely expecting others mm-hmm. to take responsibility for big elements of their lives. For the first in Britain, one thing I have seen is that in uh, private schools and uh, even even the public schools, uh, the famously very private schools of this country, um, well, uh, some of the education adopts some of the Dewey and insights because there's a recognition that if you're training people to be the leaders of tomorrow, mm. then you want them to have the experience of taking responsibility from a young age. You want them to have the experience of being able to make a case and explain what they're thinking and convince others of the value of the projects that they're trying to put forward. And so actually in elite contexts, some of the Dewey and principles are applied more commonly than in ordinary schooling. So one of the fundamental insights is basically shifting this model uh, from uh, being only available to those who have a lot of wealth and making it available to everyone, um, whereby people do learn to take responsibility uh, for uh, the running of their school. They do learn uh, to speak well and to convince others of important things, and where they do learn to think well, for example, by doing philosophy at a younger age and by taking part in practical activities whereby it is, in fact, the youth uh, who represent themselves uh, to uh, their elders to make a case for what it is that they hope to see happen in practice. So those are just, you know, some kind of gestures here. It's not as, as detailed as you might expect. In fact, even though Dewey is very famous for having a philosophy of education, some people complain that it's, it's kind of not practical enough. It doesn't tell us exactly what, you know, the curriculum mm-hmm. should look like. It doesn't tell us exactly uh, what should be the relationship between teachers and students in terms of authority uh, and so on and so forth. But it gives us a sense of direction. And so for someone like me, I think the key insight here is that anything we can do in education, anything we can do uh, in uh, uh, faith groups, anything we can do in uh, civic organizations that take people from where they are, that accept that a lot of people have been taught for a very long time that it's their place to be disempowered, that it's their place to not know about important things, that in fact they ought not uh, see themselves as change makers, Hmm. and anything we can do to help them see that in fact they can learn and they can participate, and they can be meaningfully important parts of a conversation, but also that that requires work. That it's a, I think this is the key thing, is that the Deweyan uh, insight here is that we must engage in civic work, because when we think of politics as just that thing that happens when we show up at a protest, or just that thing that happens when we vote, or just that thing that happens when we watch uh, Question Time, <laughs> well, what we're missing out on is the fact that, in fact, to participate in this aspect of life, it demands time, energy, and craft. You know, it's something that we learn how to do. And so I think that, in, in fact, from a, uh, uh, so you can probably tell from my voice, I, I'm from the States originally, but I was raised in France. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, so I'm doubly Republican in culture, right, in some mm-hmm. way, in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the political sense, not of parties, but of, you know, actually believing that uh, we are citizens who can build a, a common uh, polity together. Well, what that tells me is that in Britain, I think if you did have a a written constitution that was more rigidly codified the way in which your previous uh, phone um, caller was suggesting, one thing that it would help do is make people understand that they have a key role to play and that it is actually the system that depends on citizens building and rebuilding democracy every generation and really putting their mark on it. Whereas there is a sense in which at this point in time, at this point in history, British democracy seems to suggest that less engagement from ordinary people is probably more desirable and that the government will just do whatever it wants and there's not much we can do about it. There's ordinary that, That's just a sorry state of affairs. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Forstenzer, for being with us and giving us some 
great insight into the topic and I wish you a lovely day ahead. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a lovely day as well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, so, yeah, we were just speaking with um, the lecturer for philosophy at University of Sheffield, Joshua Forstenzer, and we are immediately... Um, going to go to our next guest caller, which is uh, Idris Mohammed, who has joined us. Um, he's a journalist and researcher based in uh, northwestern Nigeria and member of the United States Institute of Peace Network of Nigerian Facilitators. Um, Idris Mohammed, thank you very much for joining us. Peace be upon you and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Yeah, I'm with you. I say thank you for having me in the program. Thank you very much for, 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 for being with us. Um, so... What are you doing to ensure that the elections that take place in Nigeria are conducted fairly? Okay, as, as an advocate for youth inclusion in democratic governance and peace promoter in northern Nigeria, I'm organizing town hall meetings with young people, educating them on the peaceful election and educating them on voter education and also calling their attention for the need to shun away from electoral violence, vote buying, and any malpractices that will hinder the peaceful uh, conduct of the elections. This is what I'm doing now. I also recently trained local journalists on the way they are going to shun away from um, surprising fake news and misinformation ahead of the 2023 presidential election in Nigeria. This is what I'm currently doing in the country. Amazing, amazing. And um, how how big of a threat is the um, Ansaru terrorist group to the promotion of democracy in Nigeria? Um, you know, as, um, when you talk about terrorism in Nigeria, it's something that is very, very um, um, difficult to understand when it comes to the democracy and elections. Um, Any time that um, Nigeria is witnessing an election, you know, we noticed high rate of attacks from different armed groups and other organized crimes. Like in the northeast, there are Boko Haram, there is ISWAP, Islamic State of um, West Peninsula, um, attacking people and displacing some communities in the northeastern Nigeria. And for this time around in, in 2023 election, we are witnessing another protracted conflict in the northwest region where a group a terrorist group um, normally referred as bandit by the locals attacking communities and attacking people, killing and kidnapping for ransom. And also there is Ansaru also in some parts of the Northwest region like Kaduna and Katana who are also, uh, you know, engaged in threatening people not to participate in anything democracy or civilization, especially the Western civilization. So they have been issuing warning to the locals they should not ever think of participating in electionary process in the country. So this is a serious threat to our democracy, mm. even though Nigerian government have attempted many times um, to curtail the menace, but there is no any positive um, response mm. from the crisis. I think there are peace talks, amnesty, and also a lot of community initiatives put in place in order to curtail the conflict before the election. But now in less than 40 days to election, still um, there are attacks in different parts of the region. So this mm. is a serious okay. issue of concern. I mean, 
you've spoken about some of the terrorist groups and also some of the banditry that's happening, particularly in the Northwest. Uh, and you mentioned how they have a push towards their agenda. But why do you believe the governors should not have negotiated with these bandits? Um, you know, the bandits are not like, um, let me say, the terrorist group like Boko Haram or ISWAP, who are, you know, usually their demand is to establish Islamic State. But this bandit group, they don't have a centralized leadership, number one. Number two, they don't have a common demand. So no one will tell you this is what they want. Okay. What they are only saying that they have been marginalized, they have been left in the forest for so many years, no education, no health care. Basically what they are saying that is things that are affecting every Nigerian. That is okay. the failure of uh, you know, Nigerian leaders to provide the democratic dividend. So, you know, now Bandifi is lucrative business where people are getting a lot of millions. Mm. Before the coming of the conflict, the typical criminals we know in Nigeria, they are demanding less than $100. But now because they are demanding like like $2,000, $4,000, you know, they know money is very important in their life. Okay. So, you know, engaging with them for fish stock will not have because what they only understand is money okay. you know it's not like some people that you said let me address these grievances so that you drop their arms this one are purely criminals okay. what they need is money kidnapping for ransom collecting millions in terms of ransom okay absolutely that makes sense okay so we've actually been talking previously on the show about the importance of trust in democracy and how here especially in the uk even there seems to be a lack of voting enthusiasm from the youth due to a potential lack of trust. How has trust in the democratic process been eroded in the young people uh, where you are? Has it been at all? You know, Nigeria has blessed with young people. I think the 70% of the population in Nigeria is occupied by the young people. But the failure of the political leaders to provide democratic dividend has led to an increase in poverty inequality and ethno-religious division in the country. So young people are totally excluded in the in, 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 in active participation in democracy. You know, we are the one that has the highest number of population class because I'm a young person, I'm just 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but when it comes to carrying us along in like political appointment or allowing us to contest in a political position, we are not given that opportunity to participate. Though in 2018, a Nigerian president has signed a not to young to run bill, which will allow young people to participate in to contest for a different position, you know, in public office. But even though you know the young people are not allowed, because number one. For you to participate in any electionary process in Nigeria, you need to have huge amount of money okay. to purchase the tickets, you know, to even settle the godfathers, to participate in many activities in the politics. So this, this is a, a huge, you know, hindrance for young people to participate in democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that democracy uh, can work uh, long term in Nigeria? And what would you like to see done to ensure the survival of democracy? Um, you know, if successfully Nigeria conducted this election, that means we witnessed seventh uninterrupted election since our return from the 
military regime since we returned to civilian regime um, in 1999. So I think what requires for now is accountability and You know, let's Nigerian government be more accountable to their dealings. Mm. Let's promote principle of inclusion, you know, equality, um, you, you know, and freedom of expression. I think if people are freer, democracy will be easily, you know, continue in Nigeria. But once there is clamped down of the activists, journalists, you know, arrest and detention, inequality, insecurity, you know, and so many other things, I don't think the democracy can continue like the way we are now. Because if you come down to the northern part of the country, there are some people that even have this opinion that the military government is even has done better than the the democratic government now. Because people enjoy good roads, enjoy constant electricity, salary, you know, the security atmosphere during military regime. But now democratic regime, no security, no portable and drinkable water, you know, issue of irregular electricity, high rate of unemployment, you know, terrorism, and so many issues that, you know, make people to become very frustrated and even, you know, lost confidence in the process, lost confidence in the government, lack of trust, and a lot of answerable, you know, questions from the uh, public office holders. So if this can continue, I don't think the democracy can survive another Absolutely. Um, Idris Mohammed, it was um, lovely speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining uh, us today and I wish you a lovely day ahead. You are always welcome and thank you for having me in the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, this was um, Idris Mohammed who had joined us from um, northwestern Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also a member of the United States Institute of Peace Network of uh, Nigerian Facilitators. And as we are at the topic of um, elections, as Idris rightly mentioned, um, the current leader of the MD Muslim movement, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmed, um, reflected um, a, a similar outlook when speaking about elections. He And he said that when it comes to elections or nominations, a person should not vote automatically for his ally or party member. Rather, they should consider who is the most qualified and suitable for the task at hand. Thereafter, those who are selected, sorry, those are who are elected and handed the keys to government or power should exercise their duties with honesty, integrity and justice. This teaching is the model of democracy that Islam champions. And that really, I mean, summarizes everything we really, really need to know about democracy, about um, how to govern a, a certain mm. country, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot in the past hour, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Most more than anything else is our personal responsibility to, to realize that we have a duty, mm-hmm. every single one of us, Absolutely. to be part of the political spectrum. And mm-hmm. that starts from school. That starts from a young age. And we grow up and we make sure that we feel like we're part of it. Exactly. And uh, this is really important to me. Mr. Idris Muhammad also mentioned the fact that we have to start young. He mentioned mm-hmm. that he was 30 and he's young. That gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm almost yeah, yeah. there. But yeah, you're right. It's it's really realizing our, our empowerment and, and the, the opportunity that we actually have. We can grab it by the hands and we can make a change. It doesn't have to be a violent way. It doesn't have to be always on the streets. It can be done in a wide variety of ways. I mean, one thing is for sure, protests are, are often the result of um, unjust practices by the government, right? Hmm. 
and the opening verse that we mentioned in the beginning of of uh, this this show today was about the justice that we are um, expecting from from our leaders. Um, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim, Mr. Musroor Ahmed, says it is the duty of all uh, powers to fulfil the requirements of justice and to unite together. All parties need to increase dialogue and open the lines of communication so that they can peacefully discuss the best means to solve the problems of the world. These steps are necessary so that global peace can be established. And it, at the end he says that it is my prayer that Allah grants the people of the world the ability to do this. And this is um, what he said at the National Peace Symposium of 2013. Again, he is making all his efforts possible Absolutely. to bring this message to the world. And that is obviously very, very important. Again, awareness for the youth hmm. and then the leaders doing their job. And we are now going to go over to our news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, peace be upon you all and welcome back um, to the second hour of the Drive Time Show here at the Voice of Islam radio. Um, you are joined by myself, Salman, and uh, Kamar Zafar till 6 o'clock, inshallah, God willing. Um, in the previous hour, uh, we discussed um, the topic of protests in relation with uh, democracy and we had some um, lovely conversation with uh, our guest callers and uh, had great insight um, that they gave us. In the second hour now, we are going to be talking about the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, the nicest person in the world. Um, I mean, it is nothing but... Uh, um, a, a pleasure to be speaking about this topic, Amal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, both of us being imams yeah. would love to have study. We have studied and we continue to study about this. And I think it's a never-ending journey to learn about the way the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was benevolent, affectionate and kind to all people from all walks of life. And you know what? That's saying a lot. Because nowadays, I mean, it's really easy to get triggered. Yeah. There's a huge cancel culture out there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of toxic culture as well. Yeah. Especially on social media, you can say what you know. You can say something. There will always be someone to disagree with you, mm-hmm. and some of them can be very toxic as well. Yeah, and that is unfortunately the way things work right now. And we, at the moment, like a lot of us growing up, we assume that this is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. That someone said something not quite so nice, and that's made things very difficult for us. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. you weigh that right. You weigh that in on the one hand. You're like, these are kind of the challenges that we're facing today: gossip, uh, cancel culture. Yeah, and they are serious. But yeah. compare that, yeah, compare yeah. that for a moment to exactly what the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had to endure. It was yeah. a lot more than just words. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear about sticks and stones may break my bones and words may not hurt my feelings. Yeah. But on the rea- reality, with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was being persecuted mm. from all different angles, whether yeah. it was actual physical persecution as well, him losing his b- beloved family members, if it was actually attacks on him, which left him bloody or wounded, all of this he had to endure. Mm. Um, he was, you know, 
always a man that despite all of that you would find him being merciful and kind yeah. even to those people who were opposed to him yeah. and i think we can completely understand how amazing one of achievement that is today yeah absolutely where, yeah you see that how easy it is that people get triggered nowadays and upset and the way that we react might not be so up to par mm-hmm. so when we talk about the holy prophet being kind we have to consider his circumstances that they were obviously a lot harder than what we actually going through today as well you see um when we are abused somewhere online or on the road or somewhere or someone is harsh towards us the way i look at things is i just ask myself maybe he's going through something right all right he's probably in some sort of stress he's got issues mm-hmm. uh, marital issues family issues financial issues what not right mm. but then as you mentioned it is the example of the prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him um someone who who never met his 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 father his his mom passed away when he was only 6 Um, now he is growing up with his grandfather who also passes away two years later hmm. now he's living with his uncle mm-hmm. right he has no family of his own yeah right um he he loses son after son he he yeah. uh, he loses his daughters his wife passes away his uncle um, passes his, away his uncle passes away everyone that is close and dear to him is being persecuted is being killed yeah. despite all that yeah for him to be gracious and and to be even nice to people yeah i mean in in today's day and age someone like that would probably find it very very difficult to even have a basic conversation with someone let alone being so nice and gracious towards people right mm. but then there is the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who shows us that look this is also possible this is also something a human being can pull off if he really uh, puts his 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 trust in allah the almighty mm. and believes that everything um good comes from him right hmm. and then if if you look at life uh, it, it it becomes so much easier for you that's and, right and that is why he he was the, the 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 perfect role model he was the prince of peace the the pride of the world um whose whose life was really pure and whose character was beyond perfection and i mean he 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 just came to the world hmm. as, as as mercy I mean, of all mankind i mean there are now nowadays there's a lot i mean i, I like i love to watch and listen to a lot of ted talks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of uh, motivational speakers are out there and you know they all have their points to make and it's very good and i think one topic that i find a lot of people love to listen to because it, it has a lot of views yeah is quite simply this how to let go of grudges how to not take things personally i there's literally yeah. a whole ted talk yeah. dedicated to how not taking to not take things personally and, wow. this, mm-hmm. and there's this one speaker he literally says that you know uh he found it difficult because he would take things quite personally and yeah. that in, in in effect meant that he would do things which weren't the nicest things in return yeah. and he said the way that i learned how not to take things personally was i became a football referee in a in a football match because most often the times referees aren't the uh the people that people say the nicest things to yeah. so he said that maybe I'll try that and that will teach me that you know maybe I can figure out a way how to to deal with that mm-hmm. and over time he came up with certain principles and you know it's, it's all about that maybe it's a them problem and not a you problem yeah. and one thing that I've really felt missing from that mm-hmm. and what I could see with the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him so, so. is that there was always this understanding that, as you've already said is the motive behind why he was kind mm-hmm. is that we know that at the end of the day it's always god who yeah. gives someone good yeah uh, or some he, he puts someone through a trial and mm-hmm. it's always god that's doing that mm-hmm. and rather than complaining to that person in front of your face how did you do this why you said why do you do that we always go back to god mm-hmm. god today i face this if this was a trial for me oh god 
you know, please let me go through it successfully. Mm. Oh God, today this happened to me. If this is a trial for me, please allow me to overcome it. And we always go back to God and pray to him because ultimately he's the source of everything. So mm. with that understanding, I could see how the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, never forgot that. Yeah. And no matter what happened, we always mentioned about even his daughter who was killed. Mm. Uh, she was also with a child. I mean, yeah. bearing a child. She, yeah. he, they, they lost that child. Mm -hmm. And now for someone to go through that today and experience that and still be in a position to forgive yeah. the perpetrator, it's very far and wide. Yeah. That requires true motivation. And for, 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 you, for you to be told in this day, you know, today, that just be kind, just do it, don't worry. And th for there to be absolutely no motive behind that, yeah. just do it for the sake of it, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to achieve on a practical scale. Mm -hmm. Like, it's nice to say it. How many people can actually do that? Mm -hmm. So what the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did for us, he said, look, you're being kind, and there's a reason behind it. Mm -hmm. You're being kind, this is the motivation behind it, and what you're going to get out of it. And I feel like he showed us because when you practice it and you try and do what he said, like mm -hmm. let's say you're holding a grudge onto somebody, someone said something that wasn't quite the nicest thing, mm -hmm. and you forgive them. Yeah. Or even better, you go and you go and talk to them and you say it's okay. Or you, in turn, you, you might even forgive them, yeah. even though it wasn't your fault. Absolutely. That's the most liberating thing someone can do. Exactly. It's exactly. the greatest feeling that someone can have. It's like a huge burden mm -hmm. that just fell off, came off your chest. I read this it's saying, being lifted, yeah. which mm -hmm. absolutely changed my way of thinking when it came to grudges and, and hatred and it was like holding a grudge mm. is like drinking poison yourself and expecting the other person to die exactly and I'm like exactly. wow. wow I just read that I was like, that's amazing yeah. because all we're doing by not being nice is ruining our own day yeah. that other person probably won't even be affected by it mm. they may not even know you're thinking about them the moment we let go of it, yeah. it's amazing. And that's what the Holy Prophet I mean, said. That other person, if they find out that we are poisoning ourselves, will be happy actually. <laughs> Probably, exactly. <laughs> right? So the so, Holy Prophet, Muhammad peace be upon him, when yeah. he said be kind, yeah. we automatically assume that he's saying that so that it might benefit the other person. Mm -hmm. Where the reality is that the Holy Prophet, Muhammad peace be upon him, was telling us to be kind yeah. because it would make us feel better. Absolutely. It would make our day better. If only we would realize that, right? Yeah. I mean, look, in, in this day and age, um, there's this um, stigma about having to let out stress. Hmm. Now, some of us do it when we go home and they let, us, uh, let it out on their partners, on their children. Others maybe would, would go out for a smoke. And I'm not saying that anything, anything of that is right. I'm okay. just, just, just giving you the examples, right? So others would, would, would maybe go out for a smoke and, and maybe others would just go running. Someone would listen to music. Someone would hmm. just uh, go play football and just let it out there, right? But as, as you rightly mentioned that the best thing you can do and you should do being a practicing Muslim is just go back um, where you came from, um, start your prayer and start telling your story, hmm. right? The minute you start telling that story to someone you love and you know that someone loves you so much more in return, that burden is going to be lifted off your shoulders immediately. That, that feeling of, of complete freedom and, and, and uh, that liberation, um, that, that liberation is, is so amazing, right? And how often have, 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 have we gone through that, that, that whole feeling that something happened and you did not know that there is a way out, but then you go pray towards Allah the Almighty and you feel like that the problem doesn't even exist anymore, hmm. That's right? right? And then it was the Prophet who took that whole concept to its pinnacle. 
hmm. right? And that is why, obviously, he 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 was so forgiving towards human beings, and and he truly believed that it is at the end of the day Allah the Almighty that that will be rewarding or punishing us, and I as a human being can't do much to to the other person, right? And as hmm. you rightly said, don't don't poison yourself, right? Forgive, and feel better at heart. That's absolutely right. Um. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was 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 just I mean that that's an, another thing um we, we we need to talk about um some people are kind at work right others are kind within their friend circle then there are people that are kind towards their family right but to be kind in every single circle that you are in unforgivingly kind yeah unforgiving that's just so amazing and sometimes I mean it it, it it's just marvelous to 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 live a life that large. Um, we are obviously uh, going to be talking about this in in more detail. We have now with us our first guest caller, which is Imam um, Raja Burhan, who is the Imam, uh, who is uh, an Imam of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and is a professor at the Institute of Theology and Modern Languages of the Ahmadiyya community. Uh, imam Raja Burhan, thank you very much for joining us. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum assalam and thank you very much for having me in your show. Thank you very much for taking out your time. Um, could you tell us about the incident um, and the dispute of the Quraysh regarding the replacement of the black stone in Kaaba and how beautifully the Prophet ﷺ, peace be upon him, solved this matter? I will definitely answer this of your question directly. But as you you both were talking previously about the kind nature of the Holy Prophet ﷺ overall mm-hmm. in all situations, I would like to start from there. Yes, and I would like to highlight this point that one statement or one title which is given to the Holy Prophet wasallam in the Holy Quran is Rahmatul Lil Alameen, that he was mercy and blessing for everyone, yeah. for all the worlds. And you know, here the, the word is not used Rahmatul Lil Muslimin, that he was a mercy for only Muslims. Mm-hmm. Rather, he was a mercy for everybody. Absolutely. Now, uh, keeping this quality of the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, if you keep this quality in your mind and then look at this incident which you are referring to, that uh, before the Prophet of Islam claimed to be a prophet, uh, there was a reconstruction kind of thing going on of the Kaaba, the holy Kaaba which is in Mecca and all Muslims they go there and uh, just to remember Allah Almighty in a way. And when the reconstruction prof, uh, process was going on and it was almost completed, there was the last last step. And the step was that there is a very commonly known, important, a sacred kind of stone which is commonly known as the black stone. And the last act was that to put it on its original place because due to the reconstruction process they removed it from its original place and you know although it was a very simple act uh, but different leaders of different tribes in Arabia uh, they wanted this honor and they were about to start a fight that because this honor should not be given to anyone else Mm -hmm. and all of them uh, I think this was something from Allah Almighty all of them agreed on one point that okay this is the night time and we are unable to decide who is going to place it on its original place the black stone Hajar Aswad so let's uh, wait till morning 
whosoever will enter the kaaba early in the morning he will decide that what should be done and you know as i am mentioning this thing it was the game plan of allah almighty it was a sign of allah almighty that the first person who entered in that area was later on becoming the prophet of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah he was a young boy at that time and all the tribal lead, tribal leaders they agreed okay muhammad is here the trustworthy the most honest person whatever he will say we will agree on on upon that or whatever he will decide we will do that and again as i am mentioning this that the sign of allah almighty was being shown there the prophet of islam a young boy at that time muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him he gathered everybody he spread his own sheet there he placed the black stone on his sheet and asked all the tribal leaders to carry it to the place where they are supposed to place it and then everybody was happy that they all played a role in placing that black stone at its original place but on another aspect from the other side allah almighty was also showing them the sign that although you all are helping you all are doing this but the original honor is given to the prophet of islam a young boy muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him as i mentioned in the beginning rahmatul lil alamin he was helping everybody whether he is a follower there wasn't any condition of following at that time because he didn't claim to be prophet by that time so but but i think symbolically metaphorically and practically allah almighty was telling everybody that this boy is going to be very important in future and how intelligently and positively he solved this very important problem well, absolutely that's a wonderful example of how the prophet muhammad peace be upon him was kind and unbiased towards people regardless of whether what tribe or creed they belong to and that's saying one thing and i just wanted to ask you imam burhan about the fact that when it comes to somebody who you absolutely disagree with somebody who not only you disagree with but they probably have harmed you in the past and we know from the history of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him that there were many people who were bitterly opposed to his message of peace and unity what did the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam do with those kinds of people how did he treat them you know again i have to refer to rahmatul lil alamin he was blessing and mercy for everybody you know the main characteristic of the prophet of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him you will find positivity 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 and such a selfless person that his own personality means nothing to him whatever he used to do he used to do for the benefit of others so many example again but i think the best example which can be narrated here is one of the person who killed very brutally his own uncle hamza hmm. and the prophet of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him uh, because of this of very bad act of that person and a lady who was also involved there he he declared that because of the punishment of this bad act they should be killed but later on when the same enemies and not an ordinary kind of enemies rather two person who planned and very brutally killed his own uncle when they came to prophet of islam asked for mercy then and there prophet of islam 
peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, decided that, okay, you have been forgiven, but there is a love in my heart for my uncle. I would like to say to you people, please do not come in front of my eyes again and again because that will remind me, my uncle, but that of their act is forgiven. You know, it's very easy to say and to narrate, but it is very difficult when any of your beloved one is killed by someone and that person comes in front of your eyes and you forgive him. That is something extraordinary beyond, I would rather say, human imagination. And that was the kind of treatment Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, used to give to his bitter enemies, those people who killed his beloved ones, and to everybody around him. Absolutely. Um, now, talking about um, women, and especially in, in that time when they didn't have any rights, um, how did the Prophet emphasize the kind treatment of uh, women? Um, I would rather highlight this point, you know, because we are right now, we are in 21st century. And this question is very simple, a question that 1400 years ago, when the women were not treated kindly, what was the treatment of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, towards the woman? I think rather than talking about 1400 years ago, I think we can give certain example of today's world as well. Even in today's world, women, they are struggling to have their basic rights in many countries and in some of the modern countries as well. But you know, in a very polite way, in a very extraordinary way, and in a very smooth way, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, on one hand, treated women very kindly, and on another, another hand, he gave them all their rights. Rather, I would rather say that the rights given by Islamic teachings and the, by the practical example of the Holy Prophet wasallam, to women is never ever given anywhere else. A very simple example is, even in today's world, there are many cultures, there are many societies, there are many countries where people would not like to have the opinion of the women involved in any of their decisions. But right from the beginning, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, used to take opinion from his wife, from his daughter, and other female companion while he was about to make any decision for the society and for the public. So this is something extraordinary. Of course, I can mention about the, the, the rights of inheritance. I can mention about the right of having um, separate money for women. I can mention about how kindly you should be treating your wife, your daughter, your mother. This is a long story, but I think this simple and short example will be enough for today. Mm -hmm. That's an absolutely wonderful way that you've kind of linked it to the modern century. And hopefully that's quite uh, relatable for everybody listening. Uh, there is one thing that's less and less talked about right now. In fact, it's almost frowned upon, um, where, and that is actually helping the poor and needy. And the reason why I say frowned upon, unfortunately, in some circles, you will actually be told that if somebody's asking for help on the street, don't do it. Or you can't trust them. They might be doing this or doing that. And unfortunately, that is a rhetoric, a negative rhetoric that's crept into society here and there. With the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, whenever somebody approached him for any kind of uh, help, 
whether it was because they needed something or they needed finance. What was the, the response of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him? Could you share some examples? You know, very rightly you have mentioned that nowadays what people are doing, and it reminded me many of the social media photographs when somebody is given, let's say, a pound or maybe a meal to any poor person, mm. he'll be sharing a, a video or maybe a photograph to tell everybody that I have done this thing to this needy person. Mm. It is not helping them. Right. Rather, right. I, I would rather say it is uh, to make them guilty, feeling that they, they have nothing and this person is right. But having mentioned yeah. all this, it always, you know, very close to my heart, try to understand the situation. A very poor person, uh, and not only financially poor person, rather physically not a very beautiful or handsome person, rather um, a person who is having uh, very, uh, what should I say, who's wearing very poor physical condition as well, and he is sitting in a market and selling something. And you know, all of a sudden, a person goes there and with love and with care holds that person from back in, in a lovingly manner, uh, puts his hand on, on his eyes and asks him that who is going to buy this slave? And mm. that poor person realizes, I am an ugly person, I am poor, and my present condition is that because of sweating, I'm not smelling good. No other person in the world can do this, can show this kind of love to me, only the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And with love and affection, that poor person started, I mean, showing his own love towards Prophet of Islam as well, and saying that, oh, Prophet of Islam, nobody is going to buy this slave. Nobody is going to buy this ugly person. Nobody is going to buy this poor person. Mm. And the Prophet of Islam, on the other hand, kept showing his love that it doesn't matter what people say about you. I love you and I have a lot of respect for, for you. In today's world, is there anyone who's going to do this to any poor person who's in a very bad physical condition, sitting on a street, maybe selling something? I doubt this. And this was the exceptional role model of my beloved master, Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And I think what more I can say, as it is mentioned in the Holy Quran, there's no doubt in it, he was mercy for mankind. Um, what a beautiful um, example you gave uh, Imam Raja Burhan, and it really um, shows us the, the, the personality and character of our beloved Master Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, thank you very much, Jazakumullah, for being with us. And um, you, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's always uh, beautiful and uh, an honor to have you, and we wish you a lovely day ahead. Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon alaykum. you. So we were just speaking with um, Imam um, Raja Burhan, who mm. is the professor, mm. and one of our professors, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, true. <laughs> who, who, who taught us whilst we were being uh, at the Institute of Theology and Modern Languages. Um, 0208-687-7878 is uh, the number to call us and um, share with us uh, your thoughts on this topic, 0208-687-7878. So um, before we spoke with uh, Imam Raja Burhan, we were speaking about the kindness the Prophet ﷺ. Mm. Um, showed towards his family. Hmm. 
Um, it is mentioned in a hadith, in a narration, that uh, he would say the best among you is he who is best towards his family. And I am the best among you in kindness towards my family. Um, so the life of the Prophet ﷺ was free of formality. He often told his wives stories. He was extremely kind and generous um, to his family. Uh, I think um, especially if, if we have a look at um, the Indian subcontinent, uh, what you see in, in, in the past few generations is that there's always been a, a sort of gap between parents and children, especially mm. between fathers and children, yeah. right? Um, whereas the we we claim to be the followers of the Prophet ﷺ, and there was no such thing, right? <laughs> the way he lived his life, he he, he was so close uh, close to his wives and his daughters, and as as we just said that um, he he would tell them stories and and he would um, be be joking with them mm-hmm. and he would be so kind towards them. Um, but in today's day and age. Those things have changed, and we, mm. um, those that claim to be believing right. and practicing Muslims, we well, really need to take up well, on that aspect as well. Isn't you're it? Absolutely right. I mean, I think there's studies that have been conducted on exactly how to raise children. There's a lot of different th- schools of thoughts with regards to this. Mm-hmm. One thing that's almost quite unanimous, unanimously clear is that up until the age of about seven, mm-hmm. what you should be doing with your child is is creating a connection with them, just mm-hmm. playing with them, having good time with them. Mm-hmm. And that's really the way to do it. And we can see that the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, mm-hmm. whether it was his children or even his grandchildren, to be honest, yeah. was always spending time playing with them, putting them on his back, on his shoulder, running around with them, mm-hmm. to the point that when we talk about being kind to them and not allowing there for there to be any sort of fear developed between the relationship, he wouldn't ha- have ever liked that to happen. Yeah, And to the point where... When the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him would be praying in prostration, yeah, some of his grandchildren will come and you know jump on his back, yeah, and they would you know obviously they were just playing and they didn't yeah. really know what was going on, mm-hmm. and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him would prolong his prostration, and only when the children decided that they've had enough yeah. and they want to get off his back and they would run away somewhere else, he would then get up and finish his prayer, and the people yeah. would even ask him. Yeah. Uh, oh Prophet peace be upon him why like why didn't you just tell the kids to, to go away this is yeah. not a place to play no. this is not a place to run mm. and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him just replied look they were just playing and uh, I just waited until they got off so they could go and, and the lesson here is that even where today some people might choose violence <laughs> you know what I mean and not in the, in the, in the literal sense but yeah. they might say get out of the mosque yeah. Don't play in the mosque. Don't run in the mosque. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had a softer approach. Yeah. And it is because we now know about the psychology behind this is mm-hmm. that when a child is growing up, mm-hmm. we have to be trying our best to create a loving relationship with them and be yeah. friendly with them, be yeah. kind with them, even if they make mistakes, mm-hmm. not to be angry in mm-hmm. return. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we're talking about all of these things that do this, do that, do that, be like this. Be... How do you actually do it though? Because the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, actually taught us yeah. that if you want to be kind you actually need to have the energy to be kind <laughs> you can't come home at the end of the day feeling all miserable and tired and grumpy mm. because your day hasn't fulfilled you yeah. and then just be kind it, it doesn't always work like that work the like prophet that. muhammad peace be upon him has showed us that you need to start your day right yeah your day needs to go right mm-hmm. and then you can have the energy to be positive and kind so how do you actually do that mm. nowadays we are so attuned to doing things the easy way doing mm. things the, the lazy way let's mm. say it mm-hmm. uh, yeah. waking up late mm. having to order food out rather than cooking it yeah. not 
going to the gym or working out, but just going to watch TV. Mm. And all of these things have accustomed us to live a lifestyle where we want things done in a very easy way. Absolutely. Had we followed the advice of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who always did things himself, yeah. he always did things the hard way, let's put it, in mm. the independent way. He did his own household chores as well, even to the extent, to the point where he would actually, after a while, find pleasure in doing these things. Yeah. And those chores, which we normally now run away from because we're not really used to wanting to do them. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. His mind was attuned to wanting to do them. He actually found pleasure in doing those tasks. And if we live that kind of lifestyle where we actually want to go and attack these t- tasks in the day, yeah. we yeah. wake up early, we don't go to sleep late and wake up late. We wake up early, we do these things and over time we find pleasure in the, in the actual fulfillment of the task then we will have a completely different outlook on life. Mm-hmm. We'll have a positive day. We'll be like, oh, this is, here's a challenge. Yeah. That's fine. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to come home. Yeah. And that way, you come home and you're really fulfilled. You've done a hard days of work. Yeah, it hasn't been an unfulfilled day. And then you feel like, yeah, I've got energy now. I'm mm-hmm. going to spend that with my kids. Whereas what might happen is if you're not the person who's outside working hard, you're not spending time where you're supposed to, and you've been at home already, you're, you're living a couch life. Mm-hmm. You've already been in that environment from the morning and you're still there in the evening, but you haven't been doing much. No. You're already tired of that environment. Come 6, 7 p.m., you're not really going to carry that on. So mm-hmm. the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, always do different things. Keep yeah. yourself busy, try hard. And when it comes to the time where you have to finally spend time with your kids, mm-hmm. you'll be energized, you'll be yeah. ready. Mm-hmm. So being kind isn't just something that you can just turn a switch on and do it. Yeah. It requires a particular lifestyle mm-hmm. for you to be able to preserve your energy in a way that you can be kind. So yeah, that's like, when we talk about the kindness of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we really have to look at how he lived his life so that he was able to achieve that. And he was just, everything he did, he did it in the way that it needed to be done. Mm. Praying in the morning, waking up in the morning, fasting if he was fasting, you know, obviously going out, spreading the message, being kind to his neighbors. All of this stuff leads to a fulfilling life. It it feels like you're doing something with your life and Mm. that motivates you to be kind. It's about being satisfied, isn't it? Yeah, so satisfaction. Because he was satisfied. Fulfillment. That, right? Um, now, it it takes a different kind of, of satisfaction for everyone to be satisfied, right? Mm. So s- someone needs to make this amount of money in mm. a day to be satisfied. The other uh, needs to meet a certain people. Um, others need to do something else, right? Um, if we look at our, at our lifetime today, so... Th- there is a common phrase that I still have to go to work. I still have yeah, to work. There out. you go. I still have to uh, go to the mosque for, mm. for prayers. I still have to read my Quran. I still mm. have to do this, that, this, <laughs> that. Right? Why not? I I still get to pray. Yeah. Or I I get to read the Holy Quran. I get to spend time with my family. I get to go exactly. to work. Exactly. Right. That um switch as as, yeah. as you mentioned earlier changes so much. Yeah. In in a person's life, and that is exactly what the Prophet has 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 um, shown us through his um, life and character that things can be much easier if if you want. Hmm. Right at the end of the day, it is your thought process that changes things around. Um, talking about um, the 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 um, way he dealt with his children, I, another example that came to my mind is actually one of his followers and and uh, his servants is the. Um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, who okay. is um, the um, who who basically started the Ahmadiyya um, community within Islam, right? Um, once he was writing a book, 
and one of his children, um, namely the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya community, Mirza Bashiruddin, he 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 dropped ink oh, yeah. on 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 that writing, right? Many many pages worth of writing. And all he said, the Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, all he said was that maybe it was destined to be like this. Yeah. Allah Taala will give me a a better topic to write on. That is that it. is it. Yeah. Right. I mean. <laughs> someone, so someone else maybe would have chosen a very very different way you know what the funny thing is you mentioned that one yeah. right and I've just got a picture in my head of how exactly that unfolded uh-huh. because the promise of Sire peace be upon him who, who who you're talking about Yeah. so he's writing this book Yes. and you know this isn't Microsoft Word yeah? you can't just control Z things all right? exactly. or command it if you've got a Mac yeah. you can't just undo work you can't save your work mm-hmm. if it's gone is gone. It's gone. That's it, right? Yeah. And the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, writing this book, he wasn't even he wouldn't even write his book sitting down, by the way. Yeah. He would write his books while pacing up and down a room. Mm-hmm. And the reason mm-hmm. why he actually did that is because he would write with a quill. And yeah. a quill requires the pen to be topped up with ink every so often. So he yeah. would pace to one end of the room mm. where there was an ink pot, dip his ink in there, walk to the other side, writing, 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 yeah. and then dip his ink again, refill. And writing, writing, writing. Yeah. And this was a very laborious task, not an yeah. easy task. And if you've ever had the chance to read some of his books, if you haven't, visit alislam.org. They're quite numerous in in their in their pages. Yes. So it was a very big task to write these books. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're doing it with that much concentration, yeah. um, for some child to come up and uh, you know naively spill ink on it, yeah. or at other points even burn it mm-hmm. accidentally. Yeah. It's not really a thing to easily forget, is it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. And, and you're right. And that again shows us that this is how you deal with your children. So there shouldn't be an aspect of fear, right? Uh, they, they they shouldn't be fearing their, their, their parents or their father specifically. There should be a, a bond of, of mm. love and affection yeah. where you, you build trust between yourselves. And especially when they then grow up, and get to a certain yep. age, you will still be able to mm-hmm. um, speak with them and have a proper a conversation. But that, that right? can only happen though if you really have this belief in God. Yeah. Because the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, they only did that because they knew that actually the, the, it was actually God who was who was raising their children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't. They actually had that trust that it was yeah. God that would ultimately keep them on the right path, yeah. keep them in the right way. Yeah. And that I don't really need to exert my anger on this child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not going to do anything. So they had that trust in God, that if I'm patient, God will pattern it, basically. Absolutely. Um, we are going to be speaking about this topic in more detail with our next guest caller, which is um, Anas Mahmood, who is a seventh year student, a final year student of um, Jamia Ahmadiyya UK, um, the Institute of uh, Theology and Modern Languages of the Ahmadiyya Community. Um, Anas, thank you very much for joining us. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Welcome, It's very nice to be here. For, for, for being with us. Um, Anas, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that a person who meets the needs of an orphan will be as close to me in paradise as the two fingers on my hand. Um, yes. can, can you give us some examples of how the Prophet showed kindness towards orphans? So the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he was, uh, you know, as the Holy Quran says, "Wama arsalnaka illa rahmatan lilalamin," and we have not sent thee but as a mercy for mankind. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the Holy Prophet was a mercy for everyone, and that includes children and, uh, uh, and orphans. So he he is reported to have said, "The best Muslim 
Uh, the best Muslim house is a house in which an orphan is well treated. And the worst Muslim house is a house in which an orphan is badly treated. So over here in his uh, hadith, he, in, you know, in his saying, he's telling his companions that, you know, you need to treat an orphan in the best way. And whenever, you know, when a child becomes an orphan in the, the, such unfortunate cases, then you have to take care of them. And, you know, if someone decides to uh, take up a child and ad- adopt an orphan, then you have to treat them well. And if you don't treat them all, then, uh, then you know, it, it, they'll be uh, incurring the wrath of Allah. And as we all know, the Holy Prophet, وسلم, he was an orphan himself. He lost to both of his parents at a very uh, young age. So most of his life, he was an orphan. With this, he, you know, he always used to show kindness uh, to his, uh, you know, uh, kindness to the children and to orphans especially. And, you know, it's for, we need to understand that every believer, for us to, you know, to uh, as believers, we need to look at the example of how the Holy Prophet وسلم, was. And every believer uh, should be a parent for, uh, for the orphan who, you know, lost, uh, loses one or both of his parents. And <clears throat> if such an orphan feels that, you know, the, these people who have adopted him, that they have mercy on him and treat him kindly, he will like them. And, uh, you know, and uh, whether or not they're his parents or uh, whether his parents' relatives or friends, he, he will like them back. And this is the beauty of Islam, the, the religion that the Holy Prophet has left for us, uh, that he's left behind a community of believers who are cooperative and helpful, not to one another, but, you know, for everyone, for the whole world. Absolutely. I mean, you, you've spoken about orphans, and we've also spoken about how the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, grew up with a slightly disadvantaged childhood, actually, in the sense that a lot of the people that he depended on, whether it be it the mother or the father, the uncle or the grandfather, all departed at very sad intervals. Um, yet mm-hmm. the promise that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he grew up and his kindness towards children, did it reflect kind of the pain and suffering that he had to go through in a sense that he very much hoped that it wouldn't happen to other children? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think that there's an example in it for every you know, every one of us. He he showed th- this control that he had. I know it, personally, I think it has great effect on me as well. And he, you know, he would set an excellent example for training children. He would uh, train them in such a way that they w- that they would flourish in God's love, and because this would make them independent of anything except God Almighty. So they, he, from a very young age, he would inculcate this love of God in them, and you know, he would always train them with love and by offering prayers for them. And he, uh, the, in the hadith that we, we find that he used to pray for them in the words, Oh Allah, I love these children, so you love them too. So he's imploring Allah, uh, God Almighty, uh, to you know, love these kids as well, which is, you know, it shows a certain example for the companions who are with him. And you know, we also find in the hadith the sayings uh, of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But, you know, very often he would, uh, you know, whilst he was riding a horse or a camel, would carry his grandson with him on, uh, or like on his back, or like sometimes as front, and sometimes even upon his shoulders. And you know, if like if we take a moment, you know, and picture that that this is the founder of our religion, you know, and he would take this time. He was a family man. He would take his time and you know invest love and energy into these children. And you know, the, the companions would often see you know his uh, his grandson, his uh, husband may Allah be pleased with him, and Osama uh, may Allah be pleased with him. Uh, you know, they were seated on his left and right thighs, and he would often embrace both of them lovingly and pray for them, uh, like, "Oh Lord, shower thy mercy and you know and thy grace on both of them." He would show like he, he was a very you know he had a very big heart, 
and that he would show this kindness to children in a very loving way, set an example to his companions, and it continues uh, to set an example for us even today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, now we did speak about orphans and children as well. Um, there is also people that are sick and ill. How how did the Prophet Sallallahu used to take care and be kind towards the ill? Yeah, he uh, the so as I said, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He was, um, as the Holy Quran says, a mercy for mankind. He was a mercy for everyone, all peoples, and uh, you know. Uh, sick uh, people are, you know, in unfortunate circumstances, and he would make sure that such people would not feel, you know, dejected and, uh, you know, left out by uh, the community of believers. He would say that, you know, whoever visits a sick person, visits a brother in Islam, caller cries out to him. So, in a caller, uh, in this case, is an angel, and he, this caller would say, "May you be happy. May your walking be blessed, and may you occupy a dignified position in paradise." This is for someone who visits the sick. You know, when people visit each other, they well, while they're in good health, they you know they create bonds of brotherhood and friendship, uh, like which is you know which is obvious. But when they visit each other in times of sickness and you know poor or failing health, their brotherhood becomes solidified and strengthens even more. So this act of wisdom, you know, his teachings uh, the, of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, of you know visiting the uh, the sick while, while they're in the you know in the uh, predicaments is one of great wisdom. He's also like reported to have said that uh, a, a Muslim walking to visit a sick person be waiting the mercy of Allah. When the visitor sits with the sick one, they will be immersed in his, in his, the mercy of Allah until his return. Demonstrating the greatness of the reward of visiting the sick, the Holy Prophet, uh, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, also said that, uh, you know, on the day of judgment, uh, uh, Allah will say to the man, O son of Adam, when I become, became sick, uh, you, why did you not visit me? And, you know, the person will say, well, uh, oh Allah, how could I have visited you? Um, you are the Lord of all the worlds. Then Allah the Almighty will then say, did you not know that my slave, so-and-so, was sick and you did not visit him? you had visited him, you would have found me there as well, which shows, greatly shows the, you know, the importance and, you know, the grandeur and the interest of actually visiting when sick health, because it shows that, you know, one can actually find uh, God Almighty himself when visiting them. Wow. I mean, that's actually, that's actually absolutely amazing that you've spoken about. And this is something, you know, we were talking about this lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, before the show actually started. <laughs> we were yeah. talking about how we're finding it more and more difficult to find time and go yeah. and meet up with friends and colleagues, for example. And it's unfortunately yeah. a lifestyle that's just kind of prevailed. But this is a good reminder that perhaps we should try a little bit harder. Uh, but yeah, yeah we, are, we are talking about, actually, the next question is, is pretty much about that. I mean, today, where lifestyle is uh, a lot different to, I would say, what it was. Uh, we spoke about social media, cancel culture, toxic culture. There are a lot of things that can trigger a person. How can someone, first of all, find the motivation to stay kind? And uh, how do they consistently do that? <laughs> uh, well, find the motivation uh, to stay kind. I think you'd have to first and foremost look at the person who you know embodies kindness and embodies you know the greatest heart of all time, and that is the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. If any layman you know in, uh, looks at the life of this great man. Will, they'll be astounded by his patience, his kindness, even not, not only his kindness towards his uh, close uh, relatives, his family, friends, but also towards people who hated him, 
to launch attacks on his life and you know he treated him in the worst way possible uh, he showed them the uh, kindness in you know in ways that we cannot even imagine for example when he uh, marched victoriously he, when he was young he was you know he was used to be persecuted in Mecca or you know after his claimed prophethood but afterwards after you know 10 uh, years when he after about a decade he came back to Mecca victorious with his army the people of Mecca they were very you know they were very scared that you know the person who we treated really badly has come back with an army of a thousand what is he going to do to us and when he arrived in Mecca he forgave everyone he said to them la alaykum alayhi that there is no charge upon you today for everything that you did uh, you are all forgiven and for like this is for me just speaking about it is just mere words but to actually understand and you know put yourself in the shoes this you know uh, of this great person to actually do that is actually for me it's unthinkable how he did that and uh, just uh, finally i would just like to uh, like mention that uh Anas bin malik may allah be pleased with him he he was a very young boy and he you had the honor of serving the holy prophet and peace and blessings of allah be upon him and he said that uh, you know uh, he served with, uh, uh, the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him for about 10 years and he never ever said a word of impatience or rebuked him. And he 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 says himself he never even said to me, "Oof," to me it's a minor harsh word which denotes impatience. And he never blamed me by saying, "Why did you not do this or why did you not do that?" So you know, it shows that a child is bound to error at like at times. Then we are to bear with it patiently, whilst advising them and guide, uh, guiding them. You you ask for you know what's our motivation in these days, and it's, I think motivation is for us to you know look at the uh, you know the lives of uh, you know the life of our uh, of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he was the embodiment of kindness and the more we do that in my opinion i think the world is going to become a much much better and kinder place for all of us absolutely um anas it was um lovely talking with you and uh jazakallah for being with us um and i wish you um a lovely evening ahead assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi here we are uh, talking about the life of the Prophet Sallallahu and uh, him being the nicest person in the world. Um, Anas Mahmood, um, final year student of Jamia Ahmadiyya, gave us some great examples. Again, as we were speaking about this earlier, in every single avenue of life, the Prophet Sallallahu really mastered when it comes to really everything including kindness and 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 being nice hmm. um and let's speak about the the, the treatment of slaves and the prophet ﷺ actually encouraged to treat the slaves with the same respect um as their own family members yeah. um i mean for instance when a, a master and a slave went together for, for for buying something the shopkeepers at times could not distinguish between them as to who was the master and who was the slave hmm. Um, when Ali radiallahu anhu, who later became the fourth caliph of Islam, uh, went shopping and asked for two identical pieces of clothing, right? So the shopkeeper suggested that he should buy clothes of different color. He said, uh, Ali radiallahu said, My master, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, told me to treat my slaves as I would my uh, as I would treat my own kin. So whatever I wear, I shall make my slave wear the same. Hmm. Such was the treatment. I mean. In in today's day and age, we we may not be able to understand the the concept of of slavery, 
we, we may not be able to comprehend what it meant to have a slave and what, what status a master had in, in comparison to a slave, yeah. right? So the, for, the, for the Prophet ﷺ to then come and say that, look, you have to put respect um, towards a slave and then you have to make sure that you you eat the same and you wear the same sort of clothing is a massive, massive step yeah. um, towards progression of mankind. Yeah, he didn't it? even stop there. He said, obviously, first make them equal in your home. Yeah. Then establish them. Mm-hmm. Give them a, a job. Yeah. Get them financially stable and then let them go free. Absolutely. And that was exactly what happened. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, himself freed lots of slaves and the rest of the Muslims as well. Mm. And I, th- I think we, we've spoken so much about tr- being nice yeah. and doing that. And one thing that I remember that the Holy Quran states is that it says that there is one principle. If, if you do this, then those two people who were previously like bitter enemies will become like waliyun hamim. They will mm-hmm. become like the most soft-hearted friends you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. How? Mm-hmm. That the only people that can do this, that can actually mm-hmm. achieve turning hatred and bitterness into kindness, are those people who have the courage and the forbearance to just be patient mm-hmm. when they're in a heated conversation. Yeah. To just be patient when their ego demands of them to say something rude or not quite nice. Yeah. But instead of doing that, they'll be patient. Mm-hmm. And if you have the ability to do this, mm-hmm. to control yourself when you're emotional, to control yourself when you're angry, mm-hmm. again, you'll find it to be the most liberating thing you can ever do. And this is the principle of the Quran. Mark my words. If anybody tries that, yeah. it will change their life. Absolutely. Um, another aspect of the kindness of the Prophet was towards his companions, right? Hmm. So when when dealing with his family and his companions, the Prophet was full of kindness and compassion. He was well informed about his companions' needs and feelings, and was actually quite sensitive towards them. Right? He never made any um, allegations against anyone based on biased information or rumors. Yeah. Uh, he, he would always say, leave my heart clear with regard to my companions. Uh, he would bring his companions to his house. He would feed them. I mean, th- th- there is a uh, there were numerous companions that would actually eat at his house, yeah. right? Um, who who does that? Right? Yeah. And it's it's not like the Prophet ﷺ himself was very, very well off no, in, in some, uh, financial terms, sometimes right? Sometimes it would just be a, a bowl of milk. Exactly. And he would share that between all of his companions that yeah. were in the in the in the vicinity and he'd be the last person to take some from there as well he, w- he wouldn't even be like oh let me have some first and then you guys can have some yeah it was take my share yeah. and if there's some left over i'll have it yeah and and like i said it's it was done by him so much that you could almost see that he began to love doing that mm-hmm. and it was a love for being kind that motivated him to continually do that and i think that's what we we need to try and strive to achieve yeah we do it so much that we begin to enjoy it mm-hmm. and we begin to enjoy number one the fulfillment that you feel but also the, the joy that you see on that person's face and I'm saying this because His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masri Ahmed may Allah be his helper when we, he was once talking about Eid it's a Muslim celebration of, mm-hmm. of a happiness mm-hmm. a day of happiness mm-hmm. and he was telling us about basically how really to be happy on Eid yeah. and you know it's not really about getting a good gift or wearing nice clothes or having a, a, a nice meal out mm-hmm. what it really is about the way to be happy is to put a smile on someone else's face. Yeah. And this is, I think, 
coming exactly from the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he realized this and he taught it to us. Mm -hmm. That if you can be kind to other people, it might help them or it may not help them. Yeah. One person, it will, it will definitely help is you. Yeah. Your day, your fulfillment, your happiness, your joy. And that's why we should always try and, and do that. The Prophet ﷺ, in summary, had the greatest moral standards. He was an impressive example for, of divine qualities. He set such nice and excellent examples for others that even today we can reach God by following him. And really, he showed us in every way of life. Um, amazing discussion today. There is so much more to say. We don't have the time, unfortunately. Um, our shows today today were produced uh, by Nabila Shah and Amadul Noor Tayyiba. Um, Zakla, thank you very much to the team behind the scenes. And please join us tomorrow for another Drive Time show and hear our news.